At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 731st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. On today's podcast, I have a replay of my interview from the Let's Get Growing YouTube channel. I am so excited to have joined Enoch, Asia, Michaela, and Mark for an amazing conversation and exploration of my history around gardening and what I am up to in the world. The thing I love about their show is that it is fun, educational, and we had a blast. I would like to invite you to check out their YouTube channel, at The Urban Gardener, every Saturday midday for new guests and lots of great gardening information. Now let's get on with The Urban Farm Podcast. Let's welcome Greg Peterson to the show. Hey, Greg. Hello, hello. How are we doing today? What a great, fun show. How long have you been doing this? We are now on our third week. We just launched here three weeks ago, and I've been really having so much fun doing this and putting together this show. We planned it for quite a while, and so far, everything has been going really awesome, and especially when we get to invite really awesome guests like yourself, Greg, to be on our oh, show thanks. and share with us thanks. all of their really fun gardening stories and experiences. I wanted to start off the show with giving you a chance to let us know a little bit more about your garden story and how you got all started doing all the fun things in gardening that you're doing today. It, it doesn't go back to when I was seven, but right. it does go back to when <laughs> I was nine. Nine. Oh, nine. almost. All yeah. Right. And I was very interested in fish aquariums and fish. I wanted to raise my own fish to eat. Okay. So I was interested in aquaculture back then. And so I was, I got my first fish aquarium from paper route money when I was like nine or 10 years old. Uh, when I was 14, I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. So that was like 1974. And I have no idea where I, where that came from. I just know that I just knew back then that there was something inherently wrong with the way we're living and eating on the planet. And fast forward to 1980, I wrote on, so I, in 1981, I was on the board for the Arizona Aquaculture Association. I was 21 years old. I jumped in, I volunteered and was just interested in learning about aquaculture. So I figured that's how I did it. And we went to a farm down in Southern Arizona and they showed us what they were doing and they were harvesting the fish. And when you get, when you harvest a fish, you get about 30% meat and you get about 70% of everything that was left over, the entrails and the spine and all that stuff. They were throwing that away. Oh, wow. <laughs> and mostly it was going out to the wildlife in the area. So that was causing wildlife issues. Plus they were throwing away this amazing resource. So I started yeah. studying and penciled on paper this idea for what we would now call a regenerative fish farm in 1981. Wow. And then in 1991, fast forward 10 years, I discovered a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. It's a conversation between a gorilla and a man. If you haven't read the book and you're interested in our food system, go get it. It's a work of fiction. But there's a whole lot of reality in it. I discovered permaculture in 1991, which I like to call permaculture, the art and science of working with nature. How do we work in the flow of nature rather than against nature? We human beings think we can do it better than nature. I got news for you. For us, we don't. Nature's always going to bat last, as Toby Hemingway used to say. The third thing that happened for me in 1991 is I did a course at Landmark Education. And... It was their advanced course. And what they had us do was create a vision for our life. And the vision that I created for my life was that I am the person on the planet responsible for transforming 
our global food system. Yeah. Now, I can't do that on my own. I don't think for one minute that I can do it on my own, but it's what gets me up in the morning. It's okay. This is what I'm doing today. Yeah. And then the fourth thing that happened for me in 1991 was a friend of mine was sailing in somewhere in the world and they anchored on an island and went looking for a grocery store. Grocery and store. One of, one of Daniel Quinn's premise of his writing, of all of his writings, is that food used to be free. And then we locked uh, it up. Yeah. So when he went looking for a grocery store on this island, the people on the island said, go pick your own. <laughs> right. For me, that was like a... Right? Yeah. And... Absolutely. And then fast forward another 10 years, I end up back at Arizona State University getting my bachelor's degree at the age of 40. And I have to write a mission and vision for one of my classes. And the urban farm was created. It's like, how do we create a place for people to come and see that we can have an edible landscape and grow food, just go out and harvest food in our landscape? It just grows their wild. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great missions and a lot when it comes down to it, because that's kind of one of the things for me, I got into gardening a little bit later in life. When I realized, as I talk about my cucumber story, we ate our first cucumbers off of a balcony that we grew. And it, nice. was, just one of, it was just one of those, like you said, it was like my mind exploded. I was like, wait a minute, we've been, we go and buy these things and I can actually just grow this myself. And then when I moved into a larger space, not much larger, but a little bit larger space, again, as I talked about with Julia in our earlier interview, my, I just, I got this obsession with gardening and growing my own food. I wanted to grow everything. It just expanded from one thing to the next. And again, coming back to that idea that I can grow things that I was purchasing before in a store, yep. but not only that, I was growing things that tasted better because yep. you, know, you could grow them to the correct ripeness that you don't usually find in a store. You can grow so many different varieties of things that you just can't find in a store because all of those are just, they're just certain types of varieties that are good for storage and transportation. Right. So you're only getting a very limited selection of what you can get. And when you get out and grow for yourself, you've expe you can expand that whole palette into all these different things. So when it comes down to some, you said that you pretty much started at nine, when would, but, when was really your first real garden experience? When I was 14, so it's like yeah. eighth grade, we moved into the Weldon house and the, we lived in a townhouse and then we went and moved into a house with, that had about a half an acre. And when we moved into the Weldon house, my mom said, see the right, she knew I was interested in gardening. And she yeah. said, see the right half of our backyard? That's your garden, go start digging. <laughs> so I remember growing cucumbers. I remember growing watermelons, but more vividly, I remember planting fruit trees. Yeah. My favorite thing to do, and I run a huge fruit tree education program in Phoenix, Arizona, still do. And we sell about 4,000 fruit trees a year through that program. So we do education first. And so in 1975 or 76, I planted three or four fruit trees in the backyard do you remember what kind of varieties of trees those were? They were, we planted a peach, a plum, and an apricot. Oh, yes. And by 1978, I was getting so much, so many peaches off the peach tree. I said to a buddy of mine, and I was 18 at the time, I said to a buddy of mine, my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these peaches. And Tim's mom, <laughs> who has always just been Tim's mom to me, Tim said, my mom can teach you how to can. So I went over to his house, took peaches, and she taught me how to can peaches. So um, I, by the time I was 16, 17 years old, I was gardening. I was doing some serious gardening. Doing serious gardening there. And where was this? Was this in Arizona? Yep, Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix. I lived in Phoenix, Arizona from the time I was six okay. until last year when I was 61. Yeah. And I lived within five miles my enti that entire time. Yeah. A five mile radius of where I lived. So the urban farm was my house. I bought it in 1989 and I lived yeah. there until last year. So I was there for 32 years. 
And it was a third of an acre that's 80 feet wide and 160 feet deep. And over the course of that 32 years, I turned it into an edible food forest. And that's one of the big things that I'm missing here. Yeah. And Asheville is, there's not a whole lot to eat on my property yet. So I'm in full get things planted mode to get that done. Yeah. But so how, the, go ahead. Oh, so you, again, we'll stick with Arizona for a moment here. You, so you were growing and learning a garden there. And I'm sure that a lot of people are thinking Arizona, I mean, that's really hot place. Yes. So what are some of those challenges that you, you know, in some of those early gardens when it came to growing some of those things that you wanted to grow versus what you were able to? Grow? I'm a lazy gardener. So I always <laughs> find the easy way. Yeah. And so the things that were easy for me to grow is what I grew consistently. And yeah. often those things were things that I would plant and five years later, they'd be keep they'd keep coming back. Oh, so yeah. just like in a forest, nobody goes and rakes and cleans up and everything yeah. like that. I'd let my carrots and my parsley and lettuce and kale. I'd let it all go to seed, and it they reseed themselves year over year. So That's a really awesome way of doing it, right? And I'm yeah. use I use open pollinated seeds. Yeah. And so they just, the seeds just replant themselves and come back as volunteers much stronger the next year. And so you weren't finding much challenge as far as growing certain types of heat. things that you wanted to. Yeah. The heat the for heat. sure. Well, so that particular thing is just, you got to get yourself a good planting calendar. Yeah. Because we can grow in Phoenix, we can grow cold season crops. We can grow warm season crops. We can go hot, grow hot season crops. We just have to grow at the right time. So in most climates, December, January is the time when you take off from your farm, right? Yeah. In Arizona, it's July, August, September. Oh, yes. And about 15 years ago, I just got to a place of, I'm just not going to grow things in July, August, September. It's just too dang hot. I just let the yard do what the yard does. So that's the big thing is adjusting to the growing season. We actually have in Phoenix, we have four growing seasons. Okay. One that starts in August, September with the really hardy cold season crop. So arugula and kale and those kinds of things go in early. And then by October, November, we're planting the cold season crops like lettuce and those kinds of things. We can reap some of the cold season crops again in January, February. In February, March, we get your tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, those kinds of things in. And then March and April, we get all the vining crops in. Yeah. So figuring out the gardening calendar is, that's a really Im imperative thing for you to do, no matter where you're at. The second big issue that I'm finding here in Asheville, yeah. as well as in Phoenix was dirt. There, the dirt in Arizona and the desert is less than 1% organic matter. Good luck trying to grow everything, yeah, anything. That's in nothing. It. And no the life. Dirt, right, exactly. Well, we're no going to talk life. about that in a minute. Yeah. And the dirt here is clay. We could probably make pottery out of this stuff that's on my property here. So I'm looking at how to amend the soil. And you mentioned life in the soil. There are five components of healthy soil. Yeah. And if you've ever listened to anything I've ever done, I probably say this every time because it's the single most important thing that you can be doing is growing yes. healthy soil. That's right. Five components of healthy soil. Dirt is one of them. But if all you have is dirt, good luck growing anything. Yeah. Dirt, airspace. So you got to have, it's got to be able to breathe a little bit. Water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. Yep. There, there's your life that you mentioned a little while ago. Yep. Dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. The good news is that in Arizona, and I'm experimenting with this here now, the fix for dirt is adding lots and lots of organic matter. Yeah. So. For, for where you're at in North Carolina. And in Arizona. And Ar that's what I was going to say, in Arizona as well. So and either absolutely, way. Either way. We've got a bulk up 
are dirt with lots of organic matter. And so uh, often, I, in fact, I'm doing a project this morning here in North Carolina where I'm raising, I live on a slope and I'm raising part of the slope with a berm on one side and I'm backfilling the whole thing with a foot and a half of woody mulch. I yeah. just had, I had the power company people that were pruning trees in the area dump a pile of woody mulch in my driveway. They're glad to get rid of it. And <laughs> what's going to happen to that woody mulch over the course of the next 18 months is it's going to break down into really healthy soil. And in the meantime, I'll do straw bale gardens or I'll do something right. on top of it. But so the heat, knowing when to plant in really wherever you are, make sure you're planting yeah. in the right season because we cannot count on the nurseries and the big box stores, especially not the big box stores. We can't count mm -hmm. on them to be selling us the appropriate plant for the appropriate season. That's so true. So if you're in Phoenix and you're looking at broccoli right now, it's what, March? If you're yeah. in a nursery or a big box store and they're selling you broccoli, laugh at them and walk away. <laughs> yes. Because For you sure. put it in the ground and it'll immediately bolt. Yep. So that's the first thing. Make sure you're planting the right season. And the second thing is build healthy soil. Yeah, the soil is the most important part of anything. I mean, it's like where I, I say to people, it's where life begins and that's where life ends. It's mm -hmm. right in your soil. It is the medium of life. And uh, having healthy soil, building the life structure within your soil is so important when it comes down to it. And again, that really, like you said, kind of, you know, really starts with making sure that your soil or your dirt is a lot of that organic material because that's really the food for all of that life in there. And again, like you're mentioning, creating the space and the air and all of that, that that life is going to need and thrive is only going to make sure that your plants and your garden are going to thrive as well too. Right. Usually if you're finding some problems with your plants and they're not growing correctly, it's probably comes down to the soil itself when you're dealing with yeah, those. exactly <laughs> it's just like anything else we as humans need they need all of that sort of stuff too good life in your soul. and again too i'm just really that's kind of a fascinating aspect of gardening in those more southern climates though too is that how you got to change your gardening calendar whereas yeah. during the winter time you're taking a lot of time off here in the northern climates but down there you've got to take that time off in the summertime and it's just a little bit flipped but again, you can really grow all of that sort of stuff. And again, too, I'm really fascinated with the idea that you spent all that time in Phoenix, Arizona, and here it is, you've moved to North Carolina. What prompted that move from a place that you live so much of your life in? 90 plus percent of my life. Yeah. 4.7 million people in Phoenix. I apparently about a decade ago, I had told a couple of my friends that when my mom passed away, I was going to find someplace quiet to go. Yeah. And mom passed away in 2021. And so it kind of freed that space up. And when I met my partner, Heidi, a decade ago, I said, I want to go someplace quiet someday. <laughs> right. And she said, we can't leave Phoenix because all my yoga clients are in Phoenix. And it's like, all right, well, I'm with her. And, yeah. and then COVID hit. She put her classes online. We put all of our classes online. And six months later, she said to me, where do you want to move? Uh. Now, I was thinking Northern Arizville or Cottonwood or someplace up there like that. And she yeah. started looking and um, found Asheville. It's one of the most biodiverse places on the planet. Yeah. It's a, what do they call it, a temperate rainforest? Is that the right term? It's the good, a lot of rain. We get three to four inches of rain a month. Yeah. So it's a way different water harvesting challenge than here than it is in uh, Phoenix because we yeah. get, we get, seven and a half inches of rain in Phoenix a year. So we've already gotten as much rain this year here in, in Asheville as we get all year in Phoenix. Wow. So the big thing was I was looking for a place that was easier to grow food. Yeah. And uh, quiet. And quiet. Yeah. yeah. We're in rural Ash, a little town just 15 minutes west of downtown Asheville. And I think there's 3,000 people in the community and it's quiet. It's quiet. That's nice. After all of the hustle and bustle of the city there, you get yeah. to have that quiet time. But And the other thing, just let me throw this in here. And the other thing no that problem. I'm really interested in figuring out 
is how can I grow all of my own food? I'm right. very interested in figuring that out. Yeah. And uh, how much, yeah. how, what size of space are you living in now? Did you? We went from a third of an acre. Yeah. Uh, it was about 13,000 square feet to four and a half acres. Four and a half acres. Yeah. Oh. And I have from, I'm a fruit tree guy. My, the reason I love fruit trees is you plant them once and you get food for decades. Yes. You just, you just manage them and fertilize them a little bit every year and they kick off food for you. And so I have about 200 fruit, tr- fruit and berry, fruit trees and berry bushes that are, we were potting some of them up this morning before I got on the air that I'm, I'm out looking out on my backyard out here right now. And yeah. over the course of the next six months, there'll be at least 150 fruit and berry bushes back there. Wow. That's, yeah, that's going to be great. Right. But especially with all that extra space to be able to have for those particular things too. Yeah. The smaller space you got, I mean, you're kind of limited. You can only have so much, but when you got four acres, boy, it's almost unlimited what you get to do when it comes to that stuff. Is there anything, I mean, so far you've only really been gone for about a year, but is there anything that you know, or you, that you grew in Arizona that you're going to miss growing as you move forward in North Carolina? Citrus. Citrus. Yes. Citrus. I, and I, I brought some with me and I'm planning a greenhouse. We'll see how that goes. I want a nice greenhouse. And so we'll, yeah. And when I was in Phoenix this time of year, I yeah. eat four to eight navel oranges or navel like oranges a day. So I, I yeah, love oranges my are going to have a problem in North Carolina for sure. Yeah. Huh? Unless we're doing them in a greenhouse. And so we'll Is that see. Are your plans? Yes. Because you got to yeah. have the, you got to have the oranges, right? So you got to figure that out, right? Right. And more than anything, you know, I grew up in Phoenix and cold for us in Phoenix is 38 degrees. Right. This time of year, that's <laughs> warm for us here in Asheville. So I, the, one of the big reasons for the greenhouse is so that we have an outdoor place to go to garden yeah. when in the winter. Yeah, that's one of the things I really wish I could grow here. I live in Southern Oregon and it still just gets a bit too cold for some of those oranges and that sort of citrus. My yeah. daughter and I's favorite orange is the Cara orange. Oh, just no way we're going to be able Dude, to do that here. So that was a Cara navel orange right before I <laughs> came on. Oh, they're so good. So delicious. And she loves those so much. And she's a, she knows I like to garden and grow things and we do a bunch of different container trees. She's you got to grow one of those. And I'm like, I just don't think I can. I tried to, I got gifted when I was visiting someone in California a few years back, a blood orange and just to grow in a container and I just, that thing didn't last, but a couple of seasons or it tried, for a couple, yeah. it tried for a couple of seasons. And I finally had to give up on it because it just wasn't going to, just wasn't going to do here in our climate. But it's just one of those things that I kind of wish I lived in a more Southern climate so I could grow those citrus because again, probably the same for you as for me is I, I love the citrus. So when it comes to gardening and growing there in North Carolina, is there something that you're really looking forward to being able to grow that that's going that you get to do here coming up? Because you said that you haven't done much yet. So, yes, and I'm <laughs> really excited about this. Yes, grain, grain, oh, grain yeah. on my property. My property is rolling hills, and yeah. um kind of on the downside going off to the right in my backyard it goes down about 40 feet and then there's a flat platform down there that's just dirt and it's probably 1500 square feet and i was just talking to my buddy bill mcdormand he's my seed the seed guy that we do a monthly seed chat with every month and he's going to be sending me some rice oh yeah so i'm going to plant rows of ancient heirloom grains. I'll plant three or four different varieties of grain down there and a couple of different varieties of dryland rice. And we'll see. So I'm that that'll be fun. Yeah. Especially with that acreage and everything, you'll have plenty yeah. of room to grow plenty of that sort of stuff. So it looks like we've got a couple of questions here from our audience that we'll dive into here real quick. 
Cool. All right. Looks like Garden State Gardeners joining with us there. And he says, have you seen Chinese lanternflies in your area? I have not yet. And oh, the Washington Gardener had an episode of about those on her podcast. And that's when I learned about them. I didn't, I didn't know anything about them until I listened to her podcast. Kathy Gents, she's as a podcast and she had a whole episode on that. And, but no, I haven't seen any of those yet. That brings up an interesting question though, too, is that's probably, that's one of those big differences between growing in Arizona or growing in North Carolina is those different types of pests that you have. Pest pressure. Yes. Essentially we had zero pest pressure in Arizona. Zero. We didn't have any funguses. We didn't have any molds and none of that stuff growing on any of our fruit. The bug pressure there is almost non-existent. I mean, obviously there are some bugs. The skeletonizers on grapes were a big one, but, and uh, squash bugs sometimes, but just my first year of growing here. So we got here in April of last year and I had a garden planted in May in raised bed pots and a little piece in the ground. And I put six tomatoes in the ground and it was a miserable failure. The potted stuff did okay. And my buddy from Arizona Worm Farm, Zach Brooks, when I interviewed him a few months back, he said, Greg, don't forget, your first garden is your worst garden. (laughs) And that was my experience here. I just totally bombed the garden Yeah, uh, this past year. It's, a, it's the learning experience, and especially with such a different learning curve, you've got to take from one lo- from one climate to the other climate there, yep. too. That's just, yeah, and I'm sure that those pests are going to be a real education coming up soon right? as well, too, for all of those things that you've got to figure out. Yeah. Let's check in on another question that we have here. Bring it. Darth X, do you have to add worms, or do they come to your soil party? Oh, great question. So we always recommend adding worm castings. That's worm poop when you're planting trees and planting your garden. Yes. And one of the things I'm noticing here, just as I was digging this morning and getting some trees prepped and some areas prepped is the clay, even the heavy clay has worms in it, which is wow. That's amazing. But when we're adding the worm castings, and I do worm composting mostly, yeah, and it's a flow-through bin by the Urban Worm Bin. It's an amazing worm bin. And you just knock the finalized castings out of the bottom. There's worm eggs in there. So when I'm using those worm castings in my my gardens and planting the fruit trees, that is bringing some worm eggs to the party. Just transplanting Uh, them. Right, exactly. So there's worms here, and we add them indirectly. Wow, that's awesome. And we have another question, I think. Let's see. Oh, Darth X, again, do you grow uh, citrus in ground or containers in Arizona? In the ground. Containers in the, in, for really, containers for anything in Arizona is futile. Yeah. Because of the heat. If you are going to grow anything in a container, you have to make it as big of a container as possible and then shade the container in some way. Yeah. And often dry out too fast, huh? Exactly. Often what I would do is plant some kind of bean or cowpea in or sweet potatoes for that matter in the container and let them grow. And then they cascade over the edges and shade the pot. So if you're going to grow in a container in the heat, you have to shade the pot. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a big challenge when it comes to growing in containers, probably almost anywhere though, too, is getting to those summer months and the heat really starts kicking up. Mm -hmm. It's being able to keep those containers moist enough in order to not allow your soil to dry out. There's nothing worse than completely dry soil in a container. It's so hard. It's so hard to get those containers to absorb that moisture again. Part of the challenge with that is if you let them dry out, they they can be water phobic. So in order to get them saturated again, sometimes what I had to do was I took the the pot 
and put it in a bucket of water and completely yeah. saturate it that way. Yeah, again, yeah, it's such a challenge too. And sometimes it just takes forever for it to want to soak that water back up again because of it getting hydrophobic like that. And it's been one of my challenges because that's one of the things I do mostly with my gardening is I'm in small spaces. We're growing on patios and just walkways and things like that where you don't have the in-ground space. But I still love the challenge of being able to grow some trees. And that's one of the things we've been doing the last couple of seasons. I've got a peach tree, a couple of apples, and we've got a pear tree that we just got started up this last year. Nice. And yeah. And like you're talking about earlier, too, about your peach tree that you first started with there. That was one of the first ones that I started here with ours and over it took a couple of seasons but now i mean last year i had so many peaches coming off of this peach tree it was nice. unbelievable and all grown in a container too but again like you're saying a real important thing is making sure that those containers stay watered enough in order to be able to not dry out your root system and maybe really put your plants and trees in shock and all of that from that sort of thing yeah so let's get on to some of the fun stuff. Greg, you have probably one of the more fun, cool podcasts out there when it comes to gardening. I think oh, we mentioned thanks. that you have over, I mean, we're on episode three of our live cast that we have here. We have a live show, plus we put it out as a podcast a little bit later on in the day too. Yep. But over 700 episodes. Unbelievable. Thank you. We're actually approaching 750 at this point. Whoa. <laughs> 750 and over 4 million listens. I mean, that's just really awesome. And again, I really encourage everybody who's watching to go check that out. If you have not checked out at urbanfarm.org, check out these podcasts because Greg really has some great conversations with so many wonderful people from all over the world talking about gardening. I think I was just listening to one of your more recent ones and you were talking to someone from England I th or no, Australia. Oh, you listened to the, you listened this week. That was Rosemary Morrow, Ro Morrow. Yeah. She is, she was early on one of the creators in the permaculture movement with Mollison yeah. and Holmgren. I have had yeah. David Holmgren on the podcast. I got him for two episodes, but Ro Morrow, she's a rock star. And when her publisher reached out and asked if she could be on my show, it was like, yes, bring it on. So I actually got yeah. her for two episodes. That's awesome. Yeah, I've really been enjoying a lot of those great conversations that you had too. So yeah, that's really awesome. And also too, besides your podcast, and I guess we're kind of going back to Arizona a little bit because you continue to go back to Arizona as well in order to run a fruit tree program that you yeah. started there, right? Yeah. yeah. So in 1999, I decided I wanted to plant hundred fruit trees, actually 500 fruit trees in Phoenix. And I had a place to plant 50 to 70. And so I was looking for places around Phoenix to plant orchards. And so I went to the local nurseries and I wanted to buy 50 fruit trees and I wanted to reduce price because I was going to buy 50 fruit trees and nobody wanted to play with me. So I figured out how to buy them wholesale from Dave Wilson Nursery. So in 1999, I bought 100 fruit trees from them because that was their minimum order. Their, oh, their minimum order. 100 fruit trees. And it's like, all right, I have no idea what I'm going to do with 100 fruit trees. 70 of them got planted in my buddy's front and backyard. He had a football field in his backyard. And oh, wow. 30 of them went in pots. And people started asking me, because I was teaching classes and that kind of stuff. And people started asking me, first of all, how do I grow fruit trees in the desert? And I'd been growing fruit trees in the desert since 1975, remember? And so how do I grow fruit trees in the desert? And then they would say, where can I get some? Oh, yeah. And so in 2000, I started giving classes in my living room. Just how all to grow right. fruit trees in the desert. Because growing fruit trees in the desert is very different than growing them in North Carolina. Right. I'm finding that out now. And before long, I was ordering two or three or 400 fruit trees a year, and we'd get them bare root. And basically what that means is the trees get dug up, the dirt gets shaken off, they get bundled, and they send them to us. Oh, yeah. And 
So then what we do is when they arrive, and now we sell about 4,500 fruit trees a year. And we do our education all year round. We do a monthly fruit tree chat or class through urbanfarm.org. And then starting in September, we do a bunch of classes. We have five different classes on the different aspects of what you need to know to grow fruit trees and then really grow fruit trees anywhere, but we're specifically in the desert. And then yeah. people get an opportunity to pre-order fruit trees. We don't ship, so they have to pick them up in, at our facility in Phoenix. And so September, October, November, December is pre-ordered. Yeah. We do our citrus program in September. So we're open for about five days in September for people to come and pick up their citrus trees. And then the our fruit stock or fruit trees start arriving the last week of december a bunch of them are potted in four by four by nine pots a bunch of them most of the rest of them are bare roots so we have to unbundle them we have to prune them down to size because the roots have been pruned and then we do something called healing them in which is we line them up like soldiers and yeah. compost around their roots so that takes us about 10 days and then we're open for about 10 days and so okay. people have an opportunity to come and visit with us and pick up their supplies and pick up their fruit trees the second half of January. And then we close down. And But we do education all year round. Oh, awesome. And, and again, one of the... This... Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, that's just one of the cool things that that you continue to do, even though you've moved to North Carolina, still come back and maintain this fruit tree program. Yeah. Well, and I have a really great team on the ground. Janice is my everything urban farm man in Phoenix, and she works with me, works with us full time. And we're really partners in making yeah. this thing happen. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. One of I the know... things, one of the things I do know, I want to do want to throw this out. So yeah. one of the things that really motivates me with my fruit tree program is you can go into most nurseries in every big box store. I know this to be true in Arizona. I'm finding it out to be true here in North Carolina. And they will sell you a fruit tree that will never make fruit in your area. Yes. I've seen it hundreds of times in mm -hmm. Phoenix. So all of our fruit trees that we bring in, all the berries that we bring in, all the grapes that we bring in, unless they say experimental on them, they are proven by our team. They've been grown out. If you do what we tell you to do, you're going to get fruit. And yeah. so about four years ago, I was on a local TV station and they asked me the question about um, how much of the stuff at the big box stores is not climate appropriate for our area. So I actually went to Bo and checked it out before I went and got on the air with them. Yeah. And over 50% of the edible things that they were selling in the nursery at the big box store was not season appropriate, like we talked about broccoli earlier, or yeah. climate appropriate. One of the big things that we have in Phoenix is chill hours of about 350 hours. So if you buy a 600-hour apple tree, you're never going to get apples. Yes. So and that's too and true as well too is going back to talking about orange trees. We can go mm -hmm. to that same box store that you, we kind of glossed over there and, and find that they're trying to sell people these orange trees again that are just not going to work out in this area. Right. As well as other things. There's so many things that annoy me when I go to some of these places and what they're trying to sell. I was just looking through, I think last season, I was just looking through some of the things that they were selling just to check it out, just to see what's there. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of other people around with me at this store, this in their nursery and i saw a couple of people who are actually holding pots of just lettuce but the it was bolting oh. and these they didn't know for one that's not something that they should buy but you know for sure that the cashiers were going to cash them out when it came yep. to doing that unless yeah. they were really looking for some seed ultimately and that's what they were thinking i'd like to think so maybe but the idea that they're going to sell bolting plants to unsuspecting right. gardeners is just so annoying 
And when it yep. comes down to all that other stuff that you're talking about, trees, orange trees in, in our northern areas and things like that, that are just not going to happen. Right. That, you know, that's why it's really good to be listening and learning a little bit about some of that stuff so you don't get duped by some of these bigger stores and stuff too. Right. Well, I love this story. I was at, a, at the biggest of the big box stores a few years ago, and I, I always walk through the nursery department. I want to just see what's going on in these places. And I found some fruit trees and the peaches had tags on them. And what they said was peach. Right. Just peach. Just peach. Just peach. <laughs> and for those of you that don't know what that means, there are hundreds of different varieties of peaches. And some require low chill. Some mm. require high chill. And... It just said peach. And yeah. Wow. What kind of peach? Because this may or may not be a peach tree that'll grow here. Yeah. Just such a you know, really irresponsible thing to be doing yep, is, it is selling people things without the appropriate information that they need to know in order to right. be successful with growing that. Yep. And that's just, exactly. it's such a terrible thing when it comes down to it. Let's see. I think we have one more question here. From... I know there was a question from, I think, Michaela about my episode with Donna. Is that the to... question? Yeah, there you go, Greg. I just there heard it is. Donna yes. on so, the show. Michaela, it's... thanks for listening. She's a she's shared with me that she's a longtime listener of the Urban Farm Podcast. The Urban Farm Podcast is really about telling people stories. Yeah. I share so we have two different kinds of episodes. We do our monthly chats, our seed chat and our garden chat, and I'm on Rosie on the House. Those are more educational where we're talking about seeds or gardening or like that. And then the rest of the episodes, I'm interviewing people and we're really getting their story. Yeah. And the reason I love doing the podcast is because I get to learn new things. Yeah. I'm a lifelong learner. I went back to college and got my bachelor's and master's when I was in my 40s. And I didn't do it because I had to. I did it because I was having fun learning. Yes. And so when I was talking to Donna, Donna has some citrus, some lemons that she's growing in Vancouver, BC. Yes. Outside. Oh, wow. And yes, Michaela. <laughs> Donna taught me a lot about growing citrus trees here in, right. here in North Carolina. So we'll see. And in December, it got down to 18 degrees, felt like minus two here. That was impactful for them. At that point, we brought them inside. Right. But um, yeah, so I love the podcast because I get to learn so much. And yeah. I get to talk to cool people. And I've had rock stars like Jason Mraz and Holmgren and all kinds of gardening rock stars and rock stars on the show. And I've had <laughs> backyard rock stars, Susie Backyard Gardener and, you know, and everything in between. Yep, yep, exactly. One of the big things that's inspired my idea of getting on and doing this live cast and all of right? that is to be able to do a very similar thing, to get to meet all of these just wonderful and amazing gardeners from all over the world and to be able to talk about and share with them their stories. And yeah. Just one thing I was going to mention about one of the ones that I'm listening to recently, as you talked about, and always learning when it comes to Yep. You know, gardening because gardening is a constant if you're not constantly learning things then i don't know i mean maybe you're just not gardening <laughs> right <laughs> exactly. and i think i heard you mention once on one of your recent podcasts too about gardening is a big grand experiment yep and that's one of the things that we're doing is that nothing's really hard and fast when it comes to garden lessons or things that you learn and things that right. you, know, you think can't be done there's always some way to work around and do certain things and you should always be kind of experimenting and that really in the long run brings the joy the fun in gardening is to be able to kind of learn some of those things through that sort of experimental process in your garden right exactly, exactly. that's how we learn Exactly. That's how we learn. One last thing I wanted to ask you about is something else too that I know that you do is what is it, Great American Seed Up? Mm, yes. Uh, talk about that real quick here as we... I love yeah, that idea. Yeah. Going back to my vision, I'm yeah. the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. 
I believe that the place that we do that with a capital T is in is where we live. Yeah. In your front yard, in your backyard, in the cities, we need to be growing a lot more food in the cities. And uh, about a well, 15 years ago now or so, a buddy of mine and I created our local food economy model. And a, a food economy is everything that it takes to make food happen. All yeah. the way from the growing soil to growing food, to harvesting the food, to prepping the food. This circle, well, and, and mostly in our culture, it's linear. Yeah. And what we're trying to do in permaculture is make it circular. So all of that food waste goes into the compost bins that then makes worm castings or it makes compost that goes back into your gardens and you get the circular thing going. And the food economy, the local, a local food economy has seven different parts to it. Parts like um, culture, which is what does the government say about it and interacting on a social level. So there's the social piece of it. And then there's the growing of food and making farmers and adding value. So somebody grows kale and sells it to somebody that makes kale chips. So that's value yeah. added products and seeds. And so about a decade, 10 or 11 years ago, Bill McDormand, he's my awesome seed guy that I work with, with Cornville Seeds. You should get him on the show, actually. Yeah. And he yeah. and I were having this conversation about growing local food. And Greg, what happens when you run out of seeds? So we did a survey and realized that the bulk of the seeds that we have available to buy for us yeah. are on racks at big box stores. Right. That's it. That's and it. so if, if there's ever a downtime in our food economy, one of the things we're going to run out of is, could run out of is seeds. So over the course of the past decade, Bill and I, and a couple other, Janice and Bell and Kari and I, we kind of brainstormed. And seven years ago, we put together what we call the Great American Seed Up, which is a seed bazaar. It's a live two-day event in Phoenix, in person in Phoenix where people can come and scoop their own seeds because the price of the packet of seeds that has yeah. maybe six cents worth of seeds in the packet yeah. and you pay $4 for it is in the packaging and marketing. That's right. That is the bulk of the cost. So people come to this event and we usually get five or 600 people that come in and scoop seeds over this two day event. They go to the Armenian cucumber bucket and they take a tablespoon and they scoop a tablespoon put it in a bag and put a business card in the bag and seal it up and put on their list. Okay. I got one tablespoon or one scoop of Armenian cucumbers. And for that, they yeah. just paid a dollar and a quarter. And we made sure that our scoops were five to 10 times what you would get in a packet of seeds. Oh, All right. So that's the event we've amazing. been doing it now for, I think eight years. We took one year off for COVID when COVID hit bell came to us, bill and bell are partners. Bell came to us and said, Oh my gosh, we need to put together a seed up in a box to let people do it for themselves. All so right. now what we do, and we have multiple people around the country that once a, once or twice a year, they bring their community together and we sell them bulk seeds and all the supplies that you need to bag your own seeds. Oh, wow. And, and I had Chris Neese on, uh, coming up on the podcast and he does twice a year. He buys a big bundle of seeds. And it's an investment. Yeah. It's three, four, five hundred dollars. Yeah. But what you get from that investment is packets of seeds that are sixty cents each, and they're oh, wow. jumbo packets of seeds. You just have to bag them yourself, and that's wow. the fun part. So what he does is he throws a potluck. <laughs> yeah. And everybody sits around and bags their own seeds, and they all pay a piece of the price to get the bulk seeds. Wow. And they get a super discounted seeds and they get community. So this was Bill and my idea to energize the local seed economy. And you can find out about it at greatamericanseedup.org. Okay. And we still do the live event in Phoenix. Last year, we had some people fly in from San Diego. Oh, uh, right on. 
for the event. Yeah, it sounds such yeah. like a great idea. And again, like you're talking about with the idea of how seeds are really, I mean, next to soil, I mean, you got to have this, you got to have the seeds, you've there you got to have go. what it takes to get those, all those awesome, wonderful varieties. And again, if we came into some sort of situation, we weren't able to have the, the types of seeds that we need to be able to get through that. I mean, that's just detrimental to society. Yep. When it comes down to it and having a program and doing those sort of things that you're doing as well as everything else you're doing, your online course, the fruit trees, the, and especially the uh, podcast where you're getting to talk with all these people and share all of this really great, wonderful information is just amazing. And it's really one of the big reasons why we had to have you on one of our first shows oh, here you. on the Let's Get Growing show. Yeah, you had said you wanted me on the first one and we really tried, but I just couldn't make it happen. That's yeah, exactly. But we got you here right nice and early on. And just again, so awesome to be able to have this really great conversation with you about all of these different things and sharing your gardening story here with our audience. So again, Greg, thank you so much for joining with us and helping us get this whole show launched. It's really awesome to have you here with us. Thanks. I loved it. It was great. Awesome. You're Excellent. doing great work. Keep it up, man. Here's the 700 episodes for you. Yes, right. You bet. <laughs> 700. We're on our way. Again, thanks, Greg. Awesome. We'll talk to you here in a bit. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.